This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello, welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Peter Clote, and here's what's coming up. But in the end, the Americans hold the golden key in stopping this war because they're the ones that provide all of the critical support to Israel, and they're the ones that can force Israel to stop the war if they remove that support. That's William Lawrence, Professor of International Relations at the American University in Washington on the prospect of ending the Israeli-Hamas conflict. Also, the U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. says democracy is under threat in Africa. And a polio vaccination campaign that was postponed by bad weather is finally taking place in northeast Kenya. All this and more coming up on African News Tonight. A polio vaccination campaign that was planned for November but postponed due to heavy rains and floods is finally taking place in three high-risk counties in northeast Kenya. This after 13 cases of the so-called circulating vaccine-derived poliovirus type 2 were discovered last year in the area. Viewing Nairobi Bureau Chief Mariama Diallo reports. This is the third round of polio vaccination targeting three high-risk counties of Madeira, Wajir, and Garissa. The goal, according to Kenya's Ministry of Health and its partners, is to reach about 750,000 children under the age of five. About 238,000 children ages 6 to 15 in certain areas will also be vaccinated. Adam Ibrahim, Garissa County Director of Health, explains. The first case was actually the sample was collected in June 2023. And uh, there was a child which came from Somalia side, became sick and they went to the health facility. They were investigated because they were symptomatic and then they were confirmed to have a polio positive. Ibrahim says soon after, more cases were detected in some of the refugee camps. In, in the camps, Hagadera camps, there were 13 confirmed cases of polio in the camps in the in last year and that has necessitated actually three rounds of campaign to be conducted we did two rounds last year and this one was actually also scheduled to take place in november last year but due to heavy rains and floods that killed 130 and displaced 89,000, the november round was postponed Kenya is not the only country affected by a resurgence of polio. After three decades of being polio-free, Burundi had 16 cases last year. And as of August 2023, 187 confirmed cases of circulating variant poliovirus have been reported in 21 countries in the Africa region, according to the World Health Organization. Among the many reasons this has been happening are inaccessibility to basic health care, conflict and insecurity in some other countries, and climate change, says Ibrahim. Polio is more of an oral, is a, is a oral fecal transmission. And because of this climate change, age of drought, bring poor sanitation at the end of the day because of the issue of lack of water and all those things. The Horn of Africa region recently suffered its worst drought in decades. To eradicate the disease, Ibrahim points out that countries need to strengthen routine immunization, invest in a robust surveillance system, and improve their respective healthcare systems. 
Polio is a highly infectious and debilitating disease that affects children under five, causing permanent paralysis. It can also cause death in 2 to 10 percent of those paralyzed, according to WHO. Mariama Jalo, VOA News, Nairobi. To fight a cholera outbreak that's nearly a year old, Zimbabwe has rolled out a national cholera vaccination program, starting with areas that are considered most at risk. But some citizens say the government must focus on long-term measures that will rid the country of the disease. Reporter Kuzanaya Musingi brings us more. The vaccine rollout was launched in one of the cholera hotspots in Harare Monday and also in Mashingo province, Chiredze district, and in Moyera district in the Manikalan province. Harare Metropolitan Province Resident Minister Charles Tawengwa says it is important for stakeholders to work with government in fighting the epidemic. He is urging people not to shun the vaccine as it has proven to be effective. The World Health Organization's International Coordinating Group has pledged to give Zimbabwe over 2.3 million doses of oral cholera vaccine or OCV. Nearly 900,000 have been made available so far and Tawengwa says more are expected in the country in the next several days. The second delivery of the vaccine in the country is the result of the current global shortage of OCV occasioned by high demand from several affected countries in this region that are rolling out similar vaccination campaigns. Cholera broke out in February 2023. Zimbabwe's health ministry says there have been about 2,400 cases and 71 confirmed deaths. Over 400 deaths are suspected to have been caused by cholera. United Nations Children's Agency, UNICEF, is concerned that one in six of the recorded cases involves children under the age of five. At the vaccine program launch, UNICEF country representative Dr. Tajudin Oyewale said the effort is a welcome one, especially to prevent the deaths of children, but emphasized the need for other measures. As we know, more than half of reported cholera cases in the country are reported in women. And when women are safe, they will be able to take care of children and the household. It's important to also note that this vaccination works. But it works in close collaboration with all the prevention measures that has been put in place before now. And that includes safe hand washing, good hygiene practices, water treatment, and also accessing care for those who are sick. Sivana Mzorozi is the director of the Community Tolerance, Reconciliation and Development Trust, or COTRAD, in Mashingo. He told VOA that while vaccination is welcome, a holistic approach is needed to combat the disease. There is need for surveillance, there is need for public health measures put in place by the government together with the civil society. Like uh, awareness campaigns are also needed in the affected areas. Marshall Mzamindo lives in Nolayo, Zimbabwe's second biggest city, which experiences perennial water shortages. He said the government must focus on long-term solutions, including supplying portable water. Poles being drilled by the government are not long-term solutions, in our opinion. They are very temporary. And that is not what is needed. Here in Bulawayo, we've heard about the much talked about Guaishangani Dam, but unfortunately, it has not seen the light of day. The whole project has been politicized. It's only talked about when people are campaigning for elections. After elections, it's set aside. People forget about it, only to resuscitate it after five years when you go for the next 
round of elections. If sanitation is not given priority, we'll continue to have these problems that should have been done away with years back. Zimbabwe's northern neighbors, Zambia and Malawi, also are battling the disease. The United Nations late last year reported that at least 24 countries around the world were experiencing cholera outbreaks. For VOA Africa, I am Kuzanayim Sengi in Mulawayo. The United States is imploring Sudan's authorities to let aid into the country, denouncing holdups as the war between rival generals leaves millions in need of help. The administrator of the U.S. Agency for International Development, Samantha Power, says funding for Sudan's crisis remains shockingly low, with around 25 million people, more than half of the population, in need of assistance. But she says even the aid that arrives faces obstacles due to ill-disciplined or rapacious forces on the ground and bureaucracy mastered through decades of practice at being obstructionist. She says Sudan presents some of the toughest conditions for humanitarian access in the world. Power added, the fact that a permit could stand in the way of supplies reaching people with life or death needs and conditions is horrifying. Power says small local and diaspora groups have filled the vacuum and acknowledge that USAID took far too long to channel assistance through them. The United States in September announced $130 million in new assistance to Sudan. The 17-judge panel of the International Court of Justice ruled there's a plausible risk that Israel's war on the Gaza Strip violates the 1948 Genocide Convention. However, the court did not order an immediate ceasefire in Gaza as some had hoped. Israel is required to submit its report on what it's doing to fulfill the court's emergency orders by February 26. South Africa will then be given the chance to respond as members of the United Nations, both South Africa and Israel, are bound by the court's rulings and cannot appeal a decision. William Lawrence, professor of international relations at the American University in Washington, discussed the impact of the ruling with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El-Shinawi and what is next. The IC ruling was unprecedented and really important in uh, bringing this war to an eventual end. The ICJ ruling was correct. In fact, it was so correct that the American chief justice, if that's the right term, picked a somewhat narrow reading of the Genocide Convention to get the sort of 16 to 1, 50 to 2 outcome. I think if they had voted on more difficult interpretation of the law to take further steps, we would have had more of a split decision, which would have had less effect then in the in the UN Security Council. Because by the way they phrased it, they basically said, you can't do all of these things and you're doing things all wrong, which is tantamount to saying you need a ceasefire or you need to radically change your strategy to improve the situation. But because the ICJ has no enforcement mechanism, this goes to the UN Security Council. And as we saw with the last successful UN Security Council resolution, which I mean successful in that it passed and, and made very important statements about humanitarian assistance and other things and goals, the UN Security Council is supposed to enforce this ruling through some sort of resolution. So I think what happened here is the judges made the strongest case they could with, with as many judges as possible to push the Americans and to push the UN as hard as they could to change the course of the war in Gaza.
Algeria pledged to take the ruling to the UN Security Council, where member states would be asked to vote to require Israel to abide by the emergency measures ordered by the ICJ. What is the last resort if the United States used the veto against any UN Security Council resolution regarding enforcing the ruling? Usually among the 15 members, there's a representative of the Arab states. And that was the Emirates last time around, and it's Algeria now. And, and the Emirates was the one that prolonged the negotiations for the last ceasefire to the point where the Americans could support it by abstaining, meaning they didn't use their veto power. So it was just palatable enough for the Americans to abstain, allow it to go forward. Well, and uh, that's exactly what needs to happen here. The Algerians should be as consummate diplomats as the Emiratis were. They certainly have played that role throughout history at the UN, and hopefully. The Algerians will take a similar approach where they craft implementation of this that the Americans will abstain about, and then it becomes the force of international law, and any number of countries can then take actions to stop this war, with the, whatever the Americans do. So that's the game, getting the Americans to abstain by making the resolution palatable to some degree. If the Americans veto again, there isn't too much the international community can do, though I could imagine the Arab states taking more actions. They weren't that helpful with this ICJ case. I think the Libyans provided a lawyer or two and about five or six Arab states formally supported it. But um, the Arab state positions were rather moribund, rather disconnected a little bit from the South African actions. Of course, the Arab League and the Organization of Islamic uh, Cooperation supported as well. So in that sense, they represented pretty much the whole Arab world and almost all of the Muslim world. But the states didn't formally do that much. So there are things the Arab League can do in the Organization of Islamic Conference. But in the end, the American hold the golden key in stopping this war because they're the ones that provide all of the critical support to Israel and they're the ones that can force Israel to stop the war if they remove that support. Is there any role for the UN General Assembly in that one? What the UN General Assembly vote does is it empowers the UN Security Council members to do more. It puts the Americans at the UN a little bit more in the defensive. It emboldens NGOs and, and international organizations that pressure. You know, there are there organizations like the Elders, which include a lot of um, ex-UN uh, senior officials who have a certain clout, you know, and another 50 or 60 organizations that are UN adjacent, such as the Human Rights Organizations and other global geostrategic, military-oriented organizations. So that all, all of it's part of the momentum. But the UN General Assembly has no binding power, except in very rare circumstances uh, that probably won't apply here, where the UN General Assembly can force the UN Security Council to do things. But it does become part of the conversation in New York, which will hopefully put the Americans in a position to allow something to go forward to bring this war to an end. I, I mean, the Americans don't fully understand that they could solve a lot of problems by just raising their hand at the UN and recognizing the Palestinian state and a few other very simple actions and let the, let the UN go to work on making that happen. That was William Lawrence, Professor of International Relations at the American University in Washington, speaking with VUA Senior Analyst Mohammed El Shinawi. You are listening to African News Tonight. I'm Peter Clotte in Washington. For more information on these and other stories from the continent, please see viewerafrica.com. There, you will find all your favorite viewer radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. For world news, check out viewernews.com. 
U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who recently traveled to Liberia, Sierra Leone and Guinea-Bissau, says democracy has seen some gains as evidenced by the recent peaceful transfer of power with a new president in Liberia, but is under threat on the continent. With an attempted coup in Sierra Leone in recent months and political unrest in Guinea-Bissau in December, viewers Heidi Adams asked Thomas-Greenfield in an exclusive interview if that was her motivation for visiting these particular countries. Absolutely. Uh, first and foremost, the reason for my trip was uh, to lead the presidential delegation to Liberia's inauguration and reaffirm our strong commitment to the people of Liberia, congratulate them on an, an extraordinarily successful election, congratulate President Boykai, and also congratulate, uh, congratulate President Wea for graciously accepting the results of the election and being part of a smooth transition from one administration to another. Sierra Leone, I visited for a number of reasons, but Sierra Leone, as you know, just joined the Security Council uh, as an elected member. And as part of my own engagement with members of the Security Council, when there are new elected members of the Council, I try to make a visit to those countries and engage with them on their priorities uh, on the Council, our priorities on the Council, but also, as you know, Sierra Leone did have an attempted coup to condemn that, uh, that attempt, but also work with the government to discuss uh, their actions moving forward, including this commission that they've set up that will be reviewing the election, the electoral process, and that seems to be going extraordinarily well. And finally, Guinea-Bissau, I'm going backward. I started in Guinea-Bissau, but I had uh, engagement directly with the president on the situation on the ground there, encouraging uh, his continued support for a democratic process moving forward, having elections as soon as possible that will allow the country's parliament to get back into uh, operation and help this country as it uh, struggles as a, as a democracy. That is U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield. She was speaking with my colleague, viewer Straight Talk Africa host Heidi Adams in Washington this week. Libyan authorities have begun sending 350 irregular migrants to their home country, Egypt, an immigration official told the French news agency AFP. Libya has become a key departure point on North Africa's Mediterranean coast for migrants, mainly from other parts of Africa, who want to risk dangerous sea voyages in hopes of reaching Europe. Libya's rival administrations last year agreed on using a Tripoli-based anti-immigration body to coordinate deportations of foreigners who are in the country illegally. AFP says on Tuesday, Libya sent 323 migrants, many of them women, back to Nigeria on flights from the capital Tripoli and the northwestern city of Benghazi. The transfer was done in coordination with the International Organization for Migration. Libya sent 600 irregular migrants back to Egypt in November and a further 650 in December.
Indigenous African grains such as millet and sorghum are known to be nutritious but are not popular foods with many, especially the Gen Zs who view the grains as food for the poor. To change this narrative, a Kenyan entrepreneur is using the grains to make snacks and breakfast cereals to promote consumption of indigenous grains and foster environmental sustainability, as Juma Majanga reports from Nairobi. At her home-based factory in Nairobi, Dora Momani is making popcorn snacks using indigenous grains. Momani says IPOP Africa was birthed three years ago from her master's degree research project on the role of indigenous African grains in promoting nutrition in Kenya's semi-arid areas. Today, Momani purchases grains such as yellow indigenous maize, millet, sorghum, and brown rice from smallholder farmers. She converts them into snacks to provide consumers with convenient and healthy snacks that are rich in nutrients and free from oil and gluten. What IPOP is trying to do is to reclaim or bring back the glory of the traditional millet and sorghum. What we basically do is we transform these uh, indigenous grains that are climate smart, remember, because now we are talking about climate change everywhere. And we are also talking about our water tables going down. So we really want uh, people in semi-arid regions to benefit from what they have. The grains are subjected to high pressure and a temperature machine that transforms them into pops. To enhance the taste of the products, natural flavors and spices are then added through a process called food-to-food fortification. The result is a range of snacks and breakfast cereals. The products are receiving good reviews. Brandon Wayaki, a student at the United States International University Africa in Nairobi, is a consumer of the snacks. It's it's a nice snack. Like if like you see people love maybe taking popcorns and they're going for movies. So this can be like a nice alternative to popcorn. Yeah, because it's healthy and it still has the same taste, so it's okay. Kenya is one of the countries that still grapples with food security. More than a quarter of the children under the age of five, or two million children, have stunted growth, according to UNICEF. Experts say the situation is similar across Africa. Antonina Mutoro is a research scientist at the African Population and Health Research Center in Nairobi. We are currently experiencing a nutrition transition, which means that there is a shift in diets from traditional diets, which are mainly rich in in Um, micronutrients and fiber to diets which are more mostly processed, high in fat, salt and sugar. So as a consequence, you find that there is an increase in um, non-communicable diseases such as diabetes and hypertension, as well as obesity. To help address climate change, which is one of the factors affecting food systems in Africa, IPOP Africa has come up with a one-snack, one-tree initiative where the company plants a tree for every product purchased. Momani says her goal is to revolutionize the snack industry and foster environmental sustainability. We are also uh, looking at a population that is getting educated more and more, and uh, we are seeing a change in consumption patterns. So in future, actually from now going to the future, we are um, seeing a larger population moving to consumption of healthy alternative, healthy food products. And that is the niche market that we are trying to venture into. Nutrition and food security remain major challenges on the African continent. Entrepreneurs like Mumani hope to be at least part of the solution. Juma Majanga, 
VOA News, Nairobi. Militants linked to the Islamic State group carried out an attack in Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo that left several dead, reportedly including five people in a church. The French news agency AFP says the rebel raid took place late Tuesday in Baiti near the town of Oicha in the territory of Beni. A local source told the news service that eight civilians were killed by the Allied Democratic Forces, a Ugandan Muslim majority rebel coalition. Among them are five Christians killed at a worship service in Baiti. It is located in North Kivu province near the border with Ituri province, both of which the government placed under a so-called state of siege in 2021. The the measure replaces civilian administrators with members of the police and military in order to fight armed groups. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Peter Clote in Washington. For all the latest development on the continent 24-7, visit our website at viewafrica.com. On behalf of our producer David Vandy and our engineer Indugu Saida Hamdoun, thanks for choosing The Voice of America.